Hi, this is Mary, and welcome to my podcast, Mental State, where I dive into all things mental health and more. So today I brought my friend Jacqueline on the show to help me interview a grief and expert and therapist, Claire Bidwell-Smith. She is the author of three books of nonfiction, The Rules of Inheritance, which is a memoir and I read that book. I was riveted. It's an amazing book, especially if you have lost one or more parent. It's so relatable. The second book she wrote was After This, When Life is Over, Where Do We Go? And her new book is out, Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief, which I think it's so interesting because if you're familiar with grief, then you might be familiar with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote about the five stages of grief. The five stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And as we know, grief is not linear. So I love how she fits in this missing stage, which is anxiety, because I know personally I lost a parent and it was a very anxiety-ridden experience. So Claire, I just wanted to welcome you to the show. And before I get started, I just wanted to say when I first read your books, I was blown away because I really felt like you were expressing the nuances of grief and helping people in a way that hadn't really been done before. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what led you to specialize in grief. Yeah, well, I come by it honestly. I was 14 when both of my parents got cancer at the same time. I'm an only child. My mom died of colon cancer when I was 18, just as I was a freshman in college in my first semester. And then my father died seven years later when I was 25, and I cared for him at home in hospice. So I entered into my adult life with a lot of grief and a lot of existential questions and a lot of just anxiety and just felt really like in a different place than most of my peers. You know, everyone who was my age was you know, just finishing college, starting out, trying out new careers, you know, relationships, you know, living in apartments. And I was just like, what am I even doing here? And what is the point of all of this? And how do I carry so much grief? And I, you know, this was 20 years ago, and that was not a time when grief was as conversational as it is now. People weren't talking about it like they are now. There weren't as many resources. There was a lot of old school thinking about it. And I felt really lost and like not recognized in what I was going through. And so I went through a lot of ups and downs, relationships, substance abuse, just wandering and searching, trying to figure out who I was and eventually landed myself in therapy and yoga and meditation, these things that really helped me. And then I went back and got my master's in clinical psychology, became a therapist. I worked in hospice for about four years as a grief counselor. And then I went into private practice from there. I was a writer before I was um, even a griever. So writing has always been a really big part of my grief journey and my life. And I've kind of just intersected everything and wanted to impart, you know, everything I've experienced and everything I see and the people that I sit with every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, when you mentioned you were going through things that your peers weren't going through, I'm wondering, you know, Mary and I, of course, focus so much on attachment and thinking about the attachment styles. I'm wondering how you identified, looking back on it, uh, as an attacher kind of pre-loss versus post-loss. 
Yeah, you know, I think I had a really secure attachment before my mother died. My parents were married. They were good, great parents, really loving. I had a really close relationship with my mom. I think I was pretty rock solid, you know, and then that got really, really skewed for me when my mom died. She and I were so incredibly close and losing her and then kind of being forced into this world where I was supposed to just move on and be over it and really didn't do the work around it initially. It just skewed me into a different direction. So now I still grapple with an anxious attachment system and definitely did in a much heavier way for the first decade after my parents were gone. And I can imagine what you experienced in terms of losing your mother and then kind of immediately becoming a caretaker for your father. So you're losing a parent and then you're essentially becoming a parent to a parent. And what was that experience like for you while you were essentially trying to grieve your mother and then anticipating losing your father? Yeah, it was terrifying. It was a lot of anticipatory grief. You know, for years, I lived in this state of knowing he was never going to see me turn 30, you know, and knowing that I was going to be parentless before 30 and just not knowing when that was going to happen or what that was going to look like. And I was just really scared all the time. I didn't know what to hold on to. I felt very alone and scared all the time. Hmm. You mentioned when, when you started finding, you know, yoga, meditation, therapy, what kinds of things did you start to see work for yourself that kind of appeased some of that anxiety? I think I really needed to slow down and just kind of sit with myself. I needed to learn how to breathe. I needed to learn how to be in my body. I mean, there was 10 years of watching my parents in and out of mm. cancer treatments and just a roller coaster of so much. So I had a lot of fear around my physicality. A lot of my anxiety manifested it of hypochondria and this constant worry that I was going to get sick and die too. So starting to sit with a lot of that, starting to voice it and just talk about it, talk back through everything I had been through, um, finding ways to just breathe and find that pause and that space in between all the chatter in my head all the time. Mm. Really helpful. Yeah. You know, it makes me think, I, I always say how, you know, trauma is, is, defined as an event that right, turns our world upside down as we know it in a negative way. And anxiety is one of those, it's a survival skill, right? Like we, we, and a part of it isn't bad, right? We would not feed ourselves. We would not take care of ourselves as if we didn't have some anxiety. So it is a survival tool. And it also kind of, it, it, it's informing our brain in a way that says, like, I'm trying to make sense of the world in the way that I knew it before, which no longer fits, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in a way, I, I feel that anxiety is a, a part of it is like the body still living in the past, like still not quite adjusting when we're in the throes of, let's say, some anxiously attached behavior. Yeah. Would you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, absolutely. There was part of me that felt very kind of stuck and not knowing how to move forward, not knowing how to integrate who I was before the loss with who I was becoming after the loss. But there was also just this like deep fear and mistrust of the world at large. You know, it just felt like watching both of my parents go through what they went through and die, anything could happen. I became afraid of flying. I became afraid of like just absolutely everything, you know? And it was before that, before my mother died, even when they were sick, I didn't have that kind of anxiety. It was, it was not until she died that it really began for me. 
And it was, you know, this proof that like the worst thing can happen, you know? And so from there, how do you walk through the world with that knowledge every day, especially when I was so young? I mean, adolescence technically extends up to what, 24? Like I was so young when she died. I was not fully formed and able to kind of comprehend everything that happened. Yeah, even and and even at the age of 24, right, I'm sure you see in your work, it's like I, I see people in their mid-20s, late 20s. You can see the brain's still not, yes, it's fully formed, but it's also super malleable, right? So it can shift in either direction quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking about using substances to cope and whatever other unhealthy coping kind of things that you turn to. How did you transition from you know, getting out of that like cycle of using substances to turning to like more healthy ways of coping? It it was a, a few different things. Mostly it was just alcohol that I would lean into and it was, you know, it would temporarily soothe my anxiety. I definitely, I got into a really intense relationship right after my mother died with a man that was just very emotionally abusive in a lot of ways, very controlling you know, and I initially began to look back on that experience as just, I didn't know how to be in the world by myself. And so I kind of jumped right into this relationship with this man who just had such a vice grip on me. And there was some way in which I wanted and needed that, but I did begin to grow out of that and begin to find myself and find more like of a secure footing in the world and was able to leave him. But You know, I think when I started going to yoga, I know it's just so trite, but it was so helpful to just be in my body and trust my body and hold moments of challenge, which is something I had been running from for so long. You know, in yoga, you hold these poses and you're holding, even even if you're great at it, you're still holding poses that are challenging. And I just hadn't been sitting with discomfort, sitting with strain. You know, I had been running from it at every turn. And so that was a very simple early thing that was really helpful to me. I stopped drinking as much. I stopped drinking altogether for a while and then just not as much. That was really helpful. Meditation was enormous for me, you know, just starting to understand that when I wake up in the morning, all the thoughts that just burst forth, I don't have to pay attention to them necessarily. I don't have to go down the rabbit holes that each one presents. I don't have to, you know, continue to follow catastrophic thoughts or negative thinking or all the ways that I was just continuing to cycle through anxious thoughts. So those were all really instrumental. I I was just going to say, I love that you're sharing this because Jacqueline and I always say stuff like, oh, you know, you know, giving kind of giving some some tips about how to how to deal with certain, you know, things like loss. And then we say like, oh, meditate, try yoga, journaling. And I love that you're like this real life example of somebody who spun gold out of of some very tragic times. And that also you did turn to these types of practices that involved slowing down. I can really relate to that because I was practicing yoga on and off for about 20 years. And after I lost my father, I just went super deep dive into yoga. And what I like about it, what you were talking about was like, you really have to sit with your body and they're going to be good yoga days where you feel strong and powerful. And they're going to be Other yoga days where you're trying to like balance on one leg and you just cannot hold it. And there's going to be a lot of frustration. And I can imagine just we, you know, we talk a lot, Jacqueline and I talk a lot about grief around it's not a linear process. 
it's very like two steps forward, one step back. I mean, you, you know, just, you know, there are those five stages of grief that everybody knows about, but like, firstly, I don't think that everybody goes through the five stages. Some people don't experience anger. So some people don't experience bargaining, but like the thing is, it's not a linear thing. It's like some days you're going to feel okay. And other days you're not. Yeah, but the five stages prevail because I think the idea that there could be this formula out there is so appealing when you are in that kind of distress, you know, when you're in that kind of emotional anguish and turmoil, like the idea that like, okay, I just need to tick off these five boxes and I will be okay. So we keep gravitating towards them in many ways. But yeah, it's true. It's it's not linear at all. And we don't go through all of those. And there are more as well that aren't recognized within those five stages. Going back to, uh, well, just to address that really quick, yes, this is one of the reasons I think your your book on anxiety, it resonates with so many, right? Because that is a stage that many of us have dealt with, right? Especially when you experience some kind of tragedy or trauma in everyday normal circumstances, right? Where you don't necessarily have the time or to even allow uh, the self to develop some kind of acceptance about what's happening, and so then it can even trigger that further that at any moment, you know, something could spiral out and go wrong, per se. You mentioned this this man that, that you got into a relationship with afterwards and his controlling behavior. But there is something I, I was just thinking about this when you had said this in terms of, uh, you know, trauma can really make us uh, the anxious part of ourselves grasp onto anything for a sense of safety. And I'm curious if you. Uh, are able to articulate what was actually appealing about him, right? It probably wasn't all bad. There were parts that kind of pulled you in. And I'm wondering if you think this work. Yeah. Well, it's kind of an easy one in some ways because he had also gone through a a catastrophic loss at the same time. And we met while working in a restaurant, you know, as a waitress and he was a bartender and his, his brother had just been murdered. And hmm. so we met and I, I just remember looking at him and I wrote about this in my first book, but I remember looking at him one night after I had learned that this had happened. I learned from some other people. I remember looking across this room at him one night thinking, he knows something about me that nobody else in this room does, you know, and I, and vice versa. And it was just so, and the moment we kind of connected over that, it was, it was intense. It was beautiful in a lot of ways. It really was, but neither of us were in a place to understand how to, how to be with each other or how to process our own grief or how to support each other. You know, we were just clinging to a ripe life raft together and it was a mess, you know, it was really hard. You know, that really makes me think about how when we have that, when we're led by that insecurely attached part of ourselves, we are compelled towards others who have that similar insecure attachment, whether theirs looks avoidant, ours look anxious. It's, it's the yin to the yang, Right. And so the whole way out is to truly start training the brain to react, respond in in new ways in order to have a different perspective or experience. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, he I think he was also insecure. He was very controlling, but he wasn't avoidant. Like he was very present, but almost too present. You know, we were just we are like enmeshed in so many ways. And then there was I wasn't allowed to do anything outside of our relationship. Not have, I wasn't allowed to have friends. He told me, you know, what kind of underwear I should wear. You know, it was just, it was endless. And in the beginning, there was something very appealing about it because I was so lost. I felt so lost without my mother. 
And so suddenly there was this person that just was like, here's who you're going to be. And I'm going to keep my hands around your shoulders, you know, and it just felt really good initially until it didn't anymore. Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying, I'm just thinking of it in terms of the anxiously attached part of ourselves is always looking outside for the answer, right? It's like an overdeveloped external bicep, right? And the answer involves going within, like you said, and dealing with that pain, learning to trust the body, trust the self in order to navigate and trust your intuition on who might be a good fit for you or not. Yeah. So... After you got back on track, right, after, you know, getting back more in touch with yourself. So what was your experience around dating after that? I got right into another relationship, like immediately. And it, I, I was with the first man all the way up until my father died. So basically, uh, right after my mother died, all the way up until my father died. And I left him the week my father died. The, the oh, initial wow. day. Yeah. And I left him because I met another guy and I had met this other guy through a friend. And he was, of course, the opposite end of the spectrum from the first one. The second guy was definitely avoidant. He was so hands off that it was like very initially appealing coming out of that first relationship. But then but then I wanted so much more and he couldn't do that. So when did you feel like you kind of got in a place for yourself, like to start dating maybe in a more secure way? So it was really after that was after that relationship. So the first one was six years. The second one was three years. And I broke up with him. And actually, there was nobody else on the horizon. I, I just knew it was time. I had just started grad school. I was implementing all of these tools by that time, yoga and meditation. And I really felt like I wanted to do this and just figure my stuff out. But it was so scary. I remember sobriety was a big part during that time when I was newly single and I had not been single since my parents died, you know, since my mother died like this. This was my first time I was like 28 years old and it was so scary. And I remember I, I remember a couple of times I crawled underneath my desk in my apartment just to feel contained. Like I felt so just untethered to anyone. My parents were gone. I didn't have a partner. I just had these friends who were like, you know, all late 20 something kids. And and I just felt so untethered and it was hard. But then it became really rewarding once I began to kind of sit with that. You know, I would like crawl under the desk and cry and recognize how scared and alone I felt. And then I would realize, okay, but it's okay. I'm here. I'm doing it. I'm okay. And I had been so afraid to let myself feel that. I had been so scared to let myself feel that. So from there, I ended up months later, like I think it was not even a whole year, I met my first husband. And I don't know. I don't know if I've ever like really healed any of my attachment stuff. I've just kind of ping-ponged between a lot of different attachment styles with men. And the relationships themselves have gotten healthier. I've gotten better at them. But I am married for the second time. And it's been a long string of these things. And they've all been in reaction to all this loss. I mean, they really have. I lost my whole little family. And Mm -hmm. so I'm always looking for this sense of home somewhere else. It's never quite satisfying within myself. It really isn't. Like there have been, I've had beautiful moments of it, of really feeling it, of feeling strong within myself, but more so always seeking home within someone else, just the sense of belonging to someone, of belonging to a family. 
And now I've got six kids and a second husband. I mean, it's all clearly laid out here. <laughs> yeah, I was just curious because you were talking about feeling like this sense of home. And I'm just wondering, you know, something that comes up with loss is a yearning. And so I'm just curious what your experience or if you have any experience with your own yearning. Yeah, I think I just yearned for that unconditional love that's impossible to really find beyond when I had it initially, you know, with my mom. My dad was great, but it was really my mother who was my really close relationship. And I'll have moments when I'm in my deepest moments of anguish that I've had all throughout my adult life. I always have the the phrase in my head, I just want to go home, you know, and I'll be in in my home and I, I want to go home. And it's just that feeling of feeling safe, of feeling a safety net, of feeling someone there who's always going to have my back. And, and none of it's real, you know, none of us really have that, but it yep. continues to linger. Dan Siegel, I know he talks about how attachment, right? You really, in order to heal on a cellular level, a part of that lies in understanding that our attachment to the universe, to the uh, things we cannot see, right? Like a bigger picture than even uh, people in human form, yeah. you know? And I do, it does seem like that's, you know, I know that you, you mentioned that, that that is kind of a crucial part of moving through grief is some kind of you know, spiritual in the terms of connection to the intangible world. Yeah, I feel like spirituality has played a large part in all of this for me too. Mm -hmm. I've just done a lot of kind of quests and forays into various realms of spirituality and just kind of trying to find a framework with which to understand all of this, with which to understand why some of us go through what we do and what happens when we die and how connected we might be to our loved ones and if they're okay, you know, I've had all, so many questions, both for myself, but then when I began this work too, it was day after day of sitting with people who were grappling with the same questions. And in a society that's becoming more and more non-secular, like we, we come through these huge losses and enter into grief without a framework with which to understand like anything philosophical or spiritual. And it's, I think that in itself is anxiety provoking. Yeah, yeah. Going back to mother loss versus father loss, I'm curious of what you've seen in your work as far as females versus males around losing mother versus father and what, what, what things you kind of see in their response patterns. I mean, it depends. You know, a lot of most of the time, the mother is the primary nurturing attachment. You know, she holds up the household. She runs the social activities and the calendars and the schools and, you know, does all of these things. She's very emotionally supportive. Fathers are more like pragmatic and, and this is very generalized. And so what I've seen is I've worked with a lot of women who've lost a parent during childhood or adolescence. If a child loses a parent or mom during childhood or adolescence, their world is likely to change in huge ways, like their day-to-day -day life. The father may move out of the house. He may stop doing all kinds of rituals and traditions and just this kind of home nurturing that we receive. However, if a father dies, a lot of that remains largely in place, like those, those, that feeling of home and all of the stuff that comes with it. But there are many cases I've come across where the father was the nurturing one and the mother was not. And so that, that can be, you know, reversed there. But I think that most of the time the mother loss 
that I see around for daughters, especially, is just incredibly difficult. Identity-wise, attachment-wise, the sense of nurturing. I think women really struggle to nurture themselves if they don't have a mother figure in presence, whether that's a mother who can't show up for them or a mother who has died, a mother who's abusive or abandoned them. There's this, there's this real struggle to nurture themselves, be kind, compassionate to themselves. I see that more than anything. You know, I think when I look at one of the kind of pillars of secure attachment is learning to become your own best friend. And so that's your inner cheerleader, but it's also, you know, that parent, ideal parent. So not just a cheerleader in, in everything positive, but also, okay, this is hard and this is how we're going to navigate through it. Like I'm, I'm keeping it real here, right? And when you said that failure to nurture, and I'm thinking about people who, who've struggled with a mother who was not present or a mother who was lost and how that part is, does seem to always be that kind of missing gap or link. Yeah. I did this interesting exercise one night. I went back in my head and I went through like all of these decisions and choices and things I had done for like 10 years after my mother died. And I tried to imagine how it would have been different if she had been alive and like the things, what what she would have said or done. And I was like, wow, she never would have let me, you know, be in this shitty relationship. She never would have let me move to this place. She never would have let me put up with this boss that I put up with for so long. All these things that I I kind of was just doing because I didn't have that guidance and I didn't have that kind of support and I didn't have that cheerleader to say, you deserve better. And I wasn't doing it for myself. I did this exercise because I was at a point where I was like, I have to learn how to mother myself and nurture myself. I have to step in. When she died, I thought the answer to not having a mother was not needing a mother. Mm. And it wasn't until my 30s that I realized it wasn't that that wasn't the answer at all. I needed to learn how to mother myself. But it took me a long time to figure that out. It's such a key piece because it's I think about that as that inner dismissive voice or inner avoidance. That's like, I just don't need this anymore. I'll just, you know, this will be fine. And it's the healing, as you said, is in the feeling of the felt experience of learning to re-nurture. You actually, it's like that was so reinforced by the culture around me. Everyone around me just said, you'll be fine. You had her till you were 18. You're fine. You're fine. Just you're fine. So I thought I was supposed to be fine without her. Now we now we really can see this much more and look at I, I work with women all the time in their 20s and teens. And I'm like, OK, here's where we're going to start. And it's and it's these pieces, learning how to nurture themselves, learning how to step in for themselves as their own mother, you know. And what about for males in that situation? For men who've lost moms? Uh-huh. That's different. You know, men often... I see that they typically will just rehome themselves in another partner, in another woman, because the, often the mother for a man has stood there anyway as his emotional home and his sense of like, you know, his feminine energy and his emotional space that he can inhabit. And when she is gone, often they will just move right into another female who can do that and hold that space for them or another feminine energy. But I think that 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 is really hard, too, because men are so it's so much worse for men. Their their grief, their losses, their hardships, their emotional landscape are so overlooked and underlooked, much more so. Like I think about what I went through and then I think about a guy going through it and he would have had it so much worse, you know, in terms of people telling him he would be fine and just to move on and to, you know, soldier through his emotions. Thankfully, that stuff is changing as well, but it's still not there. 
Yeah. And I think like what's so important, like what I was hearing you say was that, yeah, at 18, you know, mothering doesn't just stop and switch to something else, right? We look to our, we, I mean, at least I do still look to my mother to nurture me in certain ways, to be a model, to be a teacher. And so it's like that real, you know, that kind of relationship doesn't stop. Like I will always be her daughter. She will always be my mother and, and all of the nuances that come with it. And of course, now we can be more friends and I can talk to her on a more friendship level, but like just, you know, there's certain things that a person needs from their mother and yeah, that doesn't stop at 18. And so just like kind of missing out on all of that. And also, you know, the sort of like that future tripping of like, oh, yeah, I mean, this person is going to be a permanent fixture in my life. Of course, my mother will always be there, you know, through the highs and the lows and all of the celebrations. And just to even miss out on all of that, there's a grieving around that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I see most of the women that I see who lost a mom in childhood or adolescence they are more often in avoidant relationships. They're in a, a relationship with someone who's avoidant, sometimes insecure as well, but most of the time avoidant. And when then you they insecure, you mean anxious? Is, is that what you said, insecure as well? Yeah, sorry, anxious. But then what they also have is they have either avoidant or anxious relationships with their children. So mm-hmm. it really affects their own sense of motherhood and their own attachments with their children that they have after losing a mom. So I've seen a lot of women hold their children at arm's length because they're afraid to attach to them, because they're afraid to go through that kind of put themselves at risk of loss again, or that most of the time they're anxious about the kids, like way overly anxious. You know, Richard Schwartz talks about how men and the way that you've mentioned is men, you know, they can tend to go more avoidant, actually, and does tend to be more common, although not always the case. Women tend to run more anxious and you know, historically, right, we've been taught to feel our feelings more, be more present in that way, kind of do the emotional heavy lifting, if you will, right? But that's also imbalanced. And we're seeing that start to shift. Yet with the shift is what I'm sensing is there's actually even more insecure attachment as we kind of navigate through this uh, transition, because it seems like uh, the anchor's not there on either side yet. I'm wondering what you've seen in your work around that. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I know it's kind of a tricky question. I'm just thinking of, you know, how people handle different roles, right? Like they're not necessarily as traditional households or, you know, it's like a new landscape of the expectations of men or women. And it seems to me that it's almost thrown people more into whatever their initial survival response was. If that's anxiety, that's where they're going. If it's avoidance, that's where they're going. Because that sense of safety, it seems like many of us don't quite understand in the same way, right? It is changing. Yeah, I think I think it's hard to find that sense of safety. I, think, I don't know, is it getting harder these days to find that sense of safety in general? I think sometimes when we open up these boxes of really looking at these things, it, it gets even harder to get out of them in some sense. Um, that makes sense. Like, do you see that at all? I, I do. And that's why I said that, because I was thinking, I, I suspect that is kind of the case. And It's not that the answer isn't to open up the box, but thinking back about what you said, oh, I thought the answer was I just didn't need my mother 
that way. But no, that was not the answer. The answer was leaning into and learning to continue and to honor that relationship in a different way, right? And I, I sense that somehow it's the same thing of leaning into understanding this on a deeper level versus putting it all in different boxes as a way of opening up the box, right? Like we know that doesn't work, but we're yeah. kind of all still doing it. Yeah, it is. It's 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 a lot to like. I don't know if I've ever really been able to overcome my anxious attachment style like but what I've learned to do is just really work with it understand when it's coming up understand you know when I get triggered um what my you know go-to not healthy responses are and pause and turn towards something else and it's just been a really long process of understanding that and learning it and just learning to work with myself but those impulses still arise you know that fear still arises that anxiety still arises so how is your loss was because earlier you were talking a little bit about women who have lost a mother and how that affects the way that they raise their children. How has your loss affected the way that you raise your own kids? It's fascinating. So I have three biological kids and three stepkids and the stepkids are a whole other world and scene because that comes with so much other stuff. But with my with my three I'm very anxious all the time about their safety and mortality on one level. That's one thing, you know, like, oh, they're going out on the bikes. I'm just very anxious. But I'm also, you know, very anxious about the state of our connection and relationship. How is it? What's it like? Are we okay? How are they going to feel about me when they're my age and looking back? I'm, I'm thinking about it all the time. And I feel like we are in a pretty healthy place. But what I've been coming up against a lot this year, my oldest just turned 14, which is the age I was when my parents got sick. And so I've been running up against a lot of triggers, just watching her, looking at her move through the world and thinking about myself at that time. And then because I was 18 and my mom, you know, I had just started college. I have for some reason right now, like a big handful of friends who are empty nesting and I'm seeing on social media and Facebook and whatever all these pictures of dropping their kids off at college. And I'm so triggered by it right now because mm. it's the last time I really had a mom. And so every time I see another friend of mine dropping their kid off in their dorm room, like I never had a mom after that. And I think, and I watch them and I'm like, wow, what's it going to be like for them to have these adult relationships? And I, I've been running up against this fear too, that I have this clock ticking in four years. I'm not going to see my daughter anymore because she will be 18. And I have no model for a relationship, a mother-child relationship beyond that. You know, like just no, I can't imagine. It's like this blank expanse of what kind of relationship is possible for us beyond 18. I'm kind of excited to explore that, but I have so much anxiety around it. Yeah, you know, this really makes me think of as as you were talking about, I just so appreciate, you know, one of the things I think that you do is really that is really special is your you keep it real, right? You're not sugarcoating anything and you're 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 you do such a great job of describing the nuances of the experience. And I you had mentioned how well you still you've learned to have a healthy relationship with anxiety. But I thought to myself, you know, part of healing our attachment, our insecure attachment styles, that umbrella of the avoidant, the anxious, the disorganized type is creating that awareness, right? So 
Is it, you know, I mean, part of that dynamic might be just like, oh, well, you have a higher sense of awareness around all these different triggers, right? So then you're better able to meet your needs or care for yourself or connect with others and, you know, whatever the body needs. Um, So I just wanted to honor that. And as you were mentioning, you know, kind of coming up against these kind of new um, situations, new chapters and navigating that landscape and what it looks like. And all the things that you're up against is I see that as, you know, again, if we look at it from a broader attachment lens as a way to each time is a step towards secure attachment just by keeping it real with the self and creating the awareness around what is happening and how I'm going to navigate the situation. How am I going to learn? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think I am learning every day more and more about it and getting into healthier places with it. And I will say that for like all this trauma and and anxiety and skewed attachment, it's it's just made me value life so much more. I have such meaningful relationships. I soak up every moment. You know, I don't ever take anything for granted. I love being a mom. And I, you know, I just, I prioritize that above everything else that I care about. And I I don't know. I feel like I may have been different had I had my parents, you know, I I may have taken a lot of this for granted. And there's just so many moments of it all that I feel like I really let myself steep in and show up for. And um, even when it's hard, it feels like just an incredible privilege. You know, again, I just really honor that as secure attachment because it's having the ability to say, well, how can my trauma transform me, which is really leaning into like it's expanding something that can be very uncomfortable, right? To see the world and, oh, I have a deeper sense of presence, right? Which is often the reward when we experience great strife in life, right? But to have the ability to say that versus live in the old pain is really a sign of security. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I had a client this week who lost her mother and she's a young mother herself and she can't bear to go through her son's like upcoming first birthday without her mom. So she's just not going to have a birthday party for him. And like that, that's where I'm like, no, no, no. You know, we've got to learn how to lean into this and how to bring, you know, these good positive traits out that we can, you know, grab onto. Yeah. And it's like, also, it's like, you know, when, when I was talking earlier about future tripping and it's like, well, you know, we take, and I love how you said taking these things for granted. And now you're, you're more present with these relationships. You're looking at these pictures of people dropping their kids off and it's like, okay, well, you know, with this client, okay, your mom might not be here, but how can we bring her into this first birthday party? How can we honor that? And so when you're thinking about like four years from now, dropping off your girl to college, it's like, what would you like to bring? You know, how can you bring your mom with you in that experience? And how can you honor your mom while you're doing that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the crux of like so much of the work I do. It's like, how do we continue to foster this relationship? And how do we continue to to let it grow and change? I mean, I feel like my mom has been gone for 27 years now, I think. And my relationship with her has continued, you know, and it's changed over time. And I've come to know her in different ways and understand her in different ways. And I've had years where I was mad at her and years where I just like was so profoundly in awe of her and years where, you know, I felt kind of ambivalent about her. And it, it's it's almost had its own kind of real life, even though she's been gone. And I think that there's a lot of value to looking at that and exploring it and helping 
other people really continue to recognize that they have an ongoing relationship, it's just very different from what it used to look like. Yeah, you know, I think of that in terms of whether it's uh, loss of a loved one or loss of a family member, if we have a mixed, uh, complicated relationship, uh, or even, you know, loss of a partner that just might be like a heavy breakup, right? A divorce that, you know, in a way, these relationships, like they still do live within us. As you said, they transform, right? Like our body keeps the score, like all of it is living within us. And our, our work is to learn to deal with it. I think it was Marsha Linehan who started DBT, like one of the principles is it's not our fault what happened to us mostly, but it's our responsibility to live with it and work with it. And that's what I hear in what you say of, well, the work doesn't stop. And I know, you know, the avoidant part of us just wants it to because can't it just end because it's painful. But unfortunately, we don't do that in this lifetime, you know. But I always say loss is something that happens to us, but how we grieve is is up to us. You know, how we choose to move through grief is really up to us. So I want to say, because we do talk about relationships and dating a lot in this podcast and talking about how you move through grief. So in terms of like when you're working with clients who have experienced a really significant loss and they're wanting to get back into dating or finding a relationship. What do you see in this work and and what kind of like, I guess, advice do you give people or how do you work with people who are ready to move into a new relationship? Like when is, uh, when is it too soon to date? When is it time enough? What would you say about that? Yeah. Or if somebody is actually feeling very resistant towards it. I think it's more fearful is what I see. You know, I'll see a lot of clients who have gone through a big loss maybe in the last year, and they're just really afraid to go and sit down and have to talk about this or like, how are they going to talk about it? It's the biggest thing that's happened in their life. You know, like I can think of a client who lost her mom within the last year and she's in her mid thirties and she wants to go and start dating, but she's like, I don't know how to sit down with some guy and tell him that my mom died and like, but I also don't know how to not talk about it. Such a part of what she's going through right now. She doesn't know how to not bring it into it. And I think that that's really valid. It's really hard to find the right person who can, who can meet you in that space and, and be okay with, you know, the fact that this is occurring in your life and you're carrying this grief. How would you recommend discussing that loss with a new prospect? I mean, I think it's better to talk openly about it, just to not necessarily go deep about it and right away, but to make sure it's it's on the table from the beginning, right? And not to bring it in later or try to pretend that you aren't carrying this around with you. And I think you'll find out pretty quickly if someone can hold space for it or not. Some people really can't. Some people are really, whether it's cultural or their families or they just have never been through any kind of loss, they don't know what to do with it or how to sit with it. And it's scary or they want to, you know, avoid it altogether. And then you'll know right away if you meet someone who can hold space for it and talk about it and be like, oh, wow, that must have been huge in your life. And how are you doing? And what is it like? You know, Um, and so I advise them to be open about it from the beginning in terms of making sure that they're meeting someone who can even talk about it on a base level. I think that's really important. Yeah, you're making me think of two things. One, when we're honest about our history and where we're at, right? We're going to, if we offer that honesty, it's really going to give us a lot of information about whether that person can show up, right? And 
we're looking at it and we want to find someone who's more secure, right? How they respond to that is going to be huge. And then the other thing I'm thinking about with that is I'm imagining when you're saying be honest about it right away, I think there's a, a difference between having a, an intense need for that person to respond in a certain way or reliving that in the moment, right? Like it's it's that kind of, it seems like a, a, a tender balance of holding that within self. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that I will end up working a lot with a client on is like, what is it that they, what what, what kind of response do they want? What kind of, do they expect? What kind would be healthy, you know, for them to want? And how are they going to navigate when these feelings come up? There's just so much fear. There's when you, when you go through a big loss like that, there's so much fear of getting hurt again. So clients will often just be so afraid to open themselves up to dating because they can't handle the rejection, the sense of abandonment that like any, any of that, they're so tender. It's like their skin is raw. And so kind of really talking with them about helping them prepare for that ultra sensitivity around any rejection or insecurity that might go on in the, in the realm of dating. And just helping them distance from or peel apart, which is which like, okay, this is actually like not that bad. His text wasn't that big a deal. You know, it's not as dramatic as it might feel. It's triggering everything else over here that you're feeling with your loss. And like every time that comes up, let's sit with it. Let's really look at it and look at like, is it really something he said or did? Or is it triggering just all of this other stuff you're carrying? So helping them learn how to do that is really important. So. In regards to losing a spouse or partner, uh, I'm curious of what kind of patterns you see as far as who goes uh, males versus female, who's, who's, who starts dating faster, what that kind of uh, looks like. Men always start dating faster. Always. I mean, it's startling. Uh, it's remarkable how quickly they turn around. You know, they will have been married for 20, 30 years and they will have a new partner within months. Women, I see, typically tend to take up to five years to even consider dating or partnering. And I've, I've worked with both the person who's lost a spouse, but I've also worked with a lot of young adult children who one of their parents has died and the other one starts dating. And so they're navigating that. So my client is the, is the one who lost you know, her mom and now her dad is dating very, very quickly. And so she's grappling with that. But men will turn around so quickly. And it's it's not that they don't, that they're not grieving their partner and that they don't miss them. They just do not know how to be alone. Like they seem so, I, this is where I come back to this idea of this emotional home that they find within yeah. a partner where it, they, they don't know how to have that space held for them without that. But women are so different in terms of we're much more communal. We are community oriented. We lean into our, our friends. You know, I, I have at all times, like five best friends who I go to for all my advice and support and all my stuff. And men don't typically seem to have that in the same ways. And so when they lose their partner, they they don't have that same kind of place in which to hold space for them emotionally. And so I think that is why they often partner again so fast. And but it can be really sense. disruptive to see, like for, for people around that person, yeah. it, it's really startling and hurtful sometimes. Yeah, I, I bet right, as an outside experiencer versus that the person who is doing the dating. Wait, who would you say fares better then in that case? Would you say overall there's one versus the other that? Interesting question. 
I don't know. I see. I think there's like good things and bad things for each one. I think the man often will end up getting a lot of his emotional needs met very quickly, but then he, he passes through his grief and mutes his, his grief and his loss much faster in a way that can be detrimental. And sometimes it's because his new partner doesn't want to hold space for that, you know? So he's almost forced to put aside that, that loss and that, that grief and, and just be in this new relationship. Whereas women really will swim around in the loss and the grief and sit with it and talk about it and go to groups and go to therapy and sit with their friends and like honor that more. But they get nervous about getting into relationships and they become avoidant in a lot of ways around that. I see a lot of women who lose a partner having a lot of sex right away. And that's great. I think, you know, they'll go out and they're interested in having sex, but they don't want to be in a relationship yet because they're still really communing in the relationship that's just ended with the person they lost. They're allowing themselves to really be in it still in a bigger way. So they don't feel ready to be in a relationship with someone else. And I'm wondering too, if that's like kind of getting hits of that oxytocin, that bonding, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, that's like, okay, I'm kind of needing these hits, but I'm not looking for anything long-term right now. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. So I was just thinking your clients are so lucky to have you. If I were in my 20s, I would have loved to have you working through some of my own grief in relationships. And I love that you hold space for you know, what part of this is the part of you grieving the loss of a parent or a loved one versus what part of this is actually kind of like relational with the person that you're trying to have a relationship with. So I love how you parse those two out because I think it's so important to understand the difference because everything can get so lumped up, especially when people are running anxious, right? It's just like, let's just lump it all together and, and, you know, call it one thing. And I love that you're able to help these women untangle their grief and to really, really look at it and be with it and understand the difference. Thank you. You're, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're running a training for um, professionals on mother loss uh, soon, correct? That's right. With Hope Edelman. She's the author of Motherless Daughters. And um, this will be our second ever certification in mother loss. And we did one earlier this year and it's it's amazing. It's six weeks live online with me and Hope and it's for any mental health professionals. And we just really deep dive into mother loss, like the whole spectrum of it, what it looks like, how it plays out, you know, all the different manifestations of it. It's fascinating. I love, I love this, this work. It seems uh, so, so pervasive in so many ways that we don't even think about on the, on the day to day. Yeah. No. Yeah. And just thinking about as a clinician, how that could inform, right, so much of, of, of your work with somebody. Yeah. And just like all of the nuances around it. So how can people learn more about what you're doing? They can find me online at clairebidwellsmith.com. I'm on all the social media, Claire Bidwell Smith. I have two new books coming out. I have a grief anxiety workbook coming out in November. And then I have a book coming out next March called Conscious Grieving, which is about really leaning into grief. And yeah. And you regularly run workshops as well as see clients one-on-one, correct? I do. Workshops, retreats, one-on-one clients. Yeah. 
I can see that you really enjoy your work. I can hear it in your voice. I can see it in your smile. And I love the passion that you have for this work because it's so important. It's such a, it's such a niche topic. And I think it's so overlooked. So I think it's great that we have, you know, somebody who is championing the process of grief. Thank you. I'm so glad you guys are championing attachment. It's such <laughs> a critical tool and a component of all of this. Yeah. And just as we said in the beginning, how there are so many different nuances to grief, when we're talking about attachment and grief, there's so many different nuances too. So just to wrap up how different attachment styles may process grief, let's just talk about it. So securely attached individuals they may have a more healthy and balanced approach to grief because they're going to express their emotions openly, seek support from others. And since they're coming from a secure base, they have that sense of stability in the grieving process. Now let's talk about how somebody who runs a little bit more anxious may process grief. They might experience really heightened emotional re reactions to grief. Now this is not to say experiencing strong emotions around grief is not normal because it totally is. But in this case, the fear of abandonment may intensify during the loss, which will lead to increased anxiety and a strong desire for reassurance and connection. So if you run more anxious and are processing grief, you might find yourself seeking constant support and validation throughout this process because it's really hard to accept the reality of the loss. And again, this might get into those abandonment fears. So on the flip side, if you run avoidant, you might be struggling with expressing vulnerability and you may kind of downplay your grief. You might be like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. You might find yourself returning to work a lot earlier. So there also might be a tendency to withdraw emotionally just to really help yourself cope with those intense feelings associated with loss. So it might feel a little bit confronting when people are reaching out to you, wanting to provide you solace because that feels uncomfortable. So let's talk about how the disorganized attachment style grieves. Oof, that's so challenging because the patterns, the emotional patterns can manifest in unpredictable and intense emotional responses. You might find yourself struggling to find consistent and effective ways to navigate your grief. I think with disorganized attachment, joining a grief group might be really helpful so you could see how other people manage grief. Everybody grieves in a different way. There is no one right way to grieve. But just understand how your attachment style works within the process of grieving. If you have any questions about grief, attachment, or anything else that has to do with mental health, you can reach out to me on Instagram at Mary B Therapy or reach out to me on my website, MaryBTherapy.com. And thanks for listening.